1: everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Green Book Podcast. I'm your host today, Karen Lynch, and I'm really excited to be here talking to Lauren Isaacson. And if you don't know Lauren, let me tell you a little bit about her and why I'm so excited to talk to her. Lauren has a research company. She's a qualitative researcher, It's called Curio Research. I'm going to let her tell you a little bit more about Curio Research and her background in just a moment. But she is also the current president of the QRCA, the Qualitative Research Consultants Association, of which I have been a member for the majority of my career. Um, You know, the first time I went to a QRCA event was in the early 90s, aging myself quite a bit. So I'm excited to have you here in both capacities and happy that you've decided to join us on the show, Lauren.
2: Happy to be here. So yeah, thank you for the intro. really appreciate it. That all those things are correct. I do both qualitative and uh, some minor quantitative uh, research as an individual. And my business of one. And so usually that means that I'm subcontracting for other agencies, but occasionally I do work directly with clients. And most of what I do is related to the field of technology. And so while I work on a lot of different things, uh, whether that be uh, B2B in different sectors, such as finance, or even like, God, right now, I'm doing something that is, it's, it's for the trades. So home building and heat pump installing and things like that. Um, and so I'm working on a project for that. So a lot of variety, social media, all wearables, all kinds of things, but there's usually a tech element involved. So that's typically what I do.
1: Very cool. And it's funny, I, <laughs> as you were saying, uh, you know, my work when I was executing qualitative research before I joined Green Book, I, a lot of my work was in the CPG space, um, personal care products or food and beverage. I really, I really often said to people like, I really do live in the grocery store. And yet there was like one project that came my way that was like chainsaws and the work was with lumberjacks, like in Northern Canada. And I'm like, oh, well, you know, this is a thing. And it was so, so fun to be able to step into a different world, which was not my Usual in the shopper insights category, so I love I love that you have that breadth of experience, and of course, you are located. For those of you who are listening, Lauren is based in Vancouver and has one of those dual citizenships, which I think some of us in the U.S. really coveted that dual Canadian American citizenshipness.
2: <laughs> it was hard earned. It took a long time to get
1: that. <laughs> so oh, it did take a long time you know what i and i think that we yeah we don't always think about the the length of time it takes to get it you know in the work and the studying you know you probably know know more about kind of the history of this country and that country than than most people so Kudos to you, though. Anyway, kudos to you. You know, one of the things that stuck out to me too, Lauren, with your background was, uh, you know, in your bio, you talk about UX. And if you're in the tech space, and you're doing user research, and you've also been doing it for 15 years or so. So you remember when that type of research first hit the scene and qualitative researchers were often like, wait a minute, aren't there overlaps? Wait, isn't that sort of what I do, but we don't call it that? So have you been in that the entirety of your career? No. Um, well,
2: I mean, I started out doing market research. And so I was, I was an account planner with different digital advertising agencies in Los Angeles. It wasn't the, the account planning side being in advertising, it got old. It's a lot of instability. And the account planning as a job, it, it really wasn't for me. I, that's, that's a popular kids' table job. I've never been the popular kid, but I did really like doing research. And so when I moved to Canada, it was an opportunity for me to leave advertising behind and start working in, in research. And so my first job as a researcher was in-house. It was for a local company, but it was national. It was a subdivision of, uh, of a multinational U.S. company. And they, they hired me as a researcher. And so that was my first job. And it was going from luxury cars and financial products to working with a heavy industrial supplier that was ball bearings and gaskets and uh, conveyor belts and things like that. And so it was very different and they were just looking for someone who was good at Excel. And I'm just like, yes, yes, I got I'm good you. at Excel, <laughs> but there's a lot of other things I can do too. So I kind of found ways for me to, to bring my research skills to the company, even though that's not what they hired me to do. I found ways to, to increase my value um, in different ways. name I mean, also even qualitative in-house. So that was, that was a good job for a while. And then I got laid off, uh, after five years and with a, with a really good severance. And so I was just trying to find another job and then I started contracting and then it got to the point where all of a sudden I was getting enough contracts that I didn't need a job. And so, so yeah, I've been doing that ever since.
1: Yeah. It's, you know what, I, having also spanned kind of self-employment and employment for others, I was never on the, the, um the client side or kind of the you know end buyer side as you were i was always on the supplier side of things but i think that there are silver linings to that that moment in your life when you were like well people keep calling me so therefore i'm going to keep doing this and it all turns out okay so i'm glad that it turned out okay for you in the end there and i also love thank you for sharing a bit about your career journey i love that conversation just about how different people come to where they are as qualitative researchers in particular, or just researchers in general, because we all have unique paths and we all get there in different ways. And a lot of people ask me, how did you get into this field or how did you get into this field? And I imagine you as well, especially now that you're leading the QRCA, people ask you, how did you get your start here? And it's great to share those journeys. They're all different. They're all unique. So question I have for you, speaking of the QRC, I really do want to go there because that's one of the reasons we wanted to have you on the show was... A little bit about the QRCA for those people who are, you know, not necessarily as entrenched in it as you and I are. Tell them a little bit about the QRCA, maybe the, kind of the, the organization's mission and kind of its significance in the industry. Yeah,
2: absolutely. So QRCA, I've been a member since 2017. Throughout my career, when I decided I wanted to be a researcher, I have been following QRCA. I would attend, as a non-member, I would attend their webinars if I was able to go to an in-person event, I, was, I did that, but always as a non-member. 2017, I was finally able to become a member, and uh, it's been great ever since. And let's see. So the reason to join the QRCA, its mission, its vision, it's primarily a professional development organization. So if you are there to better your practice, to increase your skill set, to understand what's coming down, what trends are happening, how are people meeting those trends, there is no better place to be than the QRCA when it comes to qualitative research. If that is something that you wanna better your practice in, if that's something you want to have more focus in, it is one of the best places to be for that. So that is the primary thing. That is what's delivered on a regular basis. The other benefits you get from being a member of the QRCA is you get a really strong community. So not only do you get professional development, everybody's very willing to share. There's this culture of abundance where no one feels like there are trade secrets to be had. People are very willing to share what they do because there's a feeling that when we are all better as a qualitative research community, there will be more work for us to do. And so that I have always been very appreciative of, and that extends to the community as well. So when you establish your friend circles within the QRCA, when you get known, when you get respect, you get what I consider to be stronger than mentoring relationships. You get, you get friendships based on mutual respect. And that is so powerful because when you come to people in a professionally vulnerable position where you're just like, I have this opportunity, I'm not sure what to do about it. There are people there who will be more than willing to help you. And that is fantastic. And that respect is earned and part of how that is earned is by volunteering and so volunteering is a big part of the QRCA culture and that you know it's it's a feature not a bug there is work to be done but when you do that work when you meet people where they are when you are able to contribute and you pull through for people in a context that isn't professionally consequential people trust you and people respect you and that that gets you good word of mouth That gets you opportunities because people will refer to things to you because they trust you. And that also gives you the ability to get that help when you need it and not be diminished in anybody's eyes because people know that you're a badass no matter what, because you pull through for them on a regular basis.
1: That's true. I just want to sit here and say, damn straight. It's so true. Everything you just said, I'm like, yes, if you could, if you all could see me, you know, I'm nodding. I, I, I can't agree more. Currently, I am, uh, full disclosure, I am on one of the the volunteer committees. I am actually one of the managing editors at QRCA Views. I've been a special interest group leader before, you know, not as involved in chapters because I'm kind of on the fringe of New York City. You know, it's hard for me to get to the New York chapter. At one point earlier in my career, we were having some great meetings here in the Connecticut area. But, you know, that New England's we're hard to come by, right, because the chapters here are a little bit Anyway, that's not important to the story. My point is I have been a volunteer and I know what that means. People really do want to help also. I think one of the greatest things to see at the QRCA events are when people are like, hey, these are all the committees that we have and we need volunteers. People are actively looking, how can I help? And I think it's that spirit of giving back because you do gain so much, right? Some of the professional development you're talking about, you gain so much from the QRCA that you start to feel like it's, you you want to give back because it's it's a win win and it becomes kind of this the more I get, the more I want to give. And then guess what? I start to get a little bit more. It's a really magical place.
2: It's very special. It's I I have been a part of other professional organizations, and I would say the culture at the Keyword CA is incredibly unique. And you can't find it anywhere else.
1: Yeah. And and also to that point, and 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 if there are listeners, you know. Because I volunteer for the QRCA, like I have no problem saying shameless plug for the QRCA. I have met qualitative researchers who were not a part of this organization, and they had no idea what they were missing out on. And I think that, to your point, there was business that came out of it for me. There were one of my very first jobs uh, in, you know, going back to when I first started my own business towards the end of the 1990s, if you will, and then I started my own business in 2000. But it was It was a QRCA friend who couldn't do a job, asked me if I would step in a New York City gig and I stepped in and the end, it was a packaging job and the end client was Kellogg. And it was like, the next thing you know, Kellogg's is calling me all of the time. And it became just a a very lucrative career step for me to launch my own business with such a large, again, consumer product as a client, consumer product company, but it was because of one person that I knew, you know, from the QRCA event. So a colleague, a trusted colleague who some might've called a competitor, but but brought me in to do some work. And the next thing you know, there was no competition there. It was just, oh, excellent. I'm so glad I could boost your career while her career was also being boosted in a different direction. So it's it's very generous in that regard. I I really do. I can't say enough about it. What are some of the things that you think happen within the QRCA ecosystem that helps support that? Like, how do they, what do they do? Some best practices or ways they make this happen for people?
2: God, how do we do that? Can I just say magic? It's just magic. I'm not sure. There's something like the in-person conference is a big part of like promoting the internal culture. People come and then all of a sudden they get us and they're just like, oh, now I understand what this is about. And this is so fun. You guys are so great. And this is, and what a wonderful experience this is. That's a big part of it. I think it's also not being afraid to ask. I think the the probably our most successful chapters and special interest groups and committees, especially ProDev, our professional development committee, and and of course views, things that that require a lot of input, people speaking, people writing, people contributing. I think the leaders of those, in order to be successful, they have to not be afraid to ask. And so being able to reach out to people and go, can you do this? Can you provide, can you uh, teach a web? That was uh, your talk proposal was great. Can you write an article on it? Can you teach a webinar on it? Can you do um, a paid class on it? Not being afraid to ask and always kind of like having your finger on like what people are doing and, and how people are trying to differentiate themselves and what people are are experimenting with that definitely helps. And so I think that's that's a big thing. People have ideas, they want to try something and they are have complete freedom to try it.
1: I think there's also something about as you're talking and I'm I'm taking it in, I'm thinking there's there's something about trusting that the conversations you're having are are meaningful in the moment. And if they're meant to lead somewhere else, they will. I think about relationships that I formed. One of the strong friendships I formed at the QRCA, there's one I mentioned already, but another one was with a woman who was client side. At one point, when I had first talked to her, she came to the QRCA as a client side qualitative researcher. And we just decided to become friends. And ultimately, Yes, she had hired me, but I I hired her when I worked at a full service company, and and another individual that I met for the first time on the exhibit floor at the QRCA actually now works on our team here at Green Book. So I think you have to just be open to I don't know where my career is going, I don't know where my clients are going to be coming from, I don't know who I'm going to hire or who might hire me, but I am here to just get to know people, and I think there's this this trust of what happens at the conference. That is greater than all of us. I don't know if that makes any sense. It does. It feels a little like magic.
2: <laughs> it, it, yeah. I, I, I'm not sure how else to describe it. There is something about being there and being among the people. You just kind of, you get it. You know, I was a speaker mentor to some people who were not familiar with the with the QRCA before. And, and one of the things I told them, just like, if you want to deliver a successful talk here, you have to share your recipe. You cannot have trade secrets. You know, you're presenting a new concept. You need to tell people how to do this successfully. And if if you don't do that, you're not gonna have your your talk will not be rated well. So that's something I set up. It's just like you have to be willing to share.
1: Yes. And I think and I am a speaker mentor this year as well. And I think that what's what I think is another commonality of all of this conversation, then I I'll move us along to the next topic, but it's this idea that everybody in the QRCA community seems to genuinely want everybody else to be successful. And they want that because it elevates the corner of the industry that qualitative researchers operate in. Like the the more successful everybody is collectively, the more the entire qual industry is elevated. And we all seem to understand that and understand the significance of, of that, cheerleading that we do for one another. So yeah, people who genuinely want the speakers to do better and to be well received. And, you know, we generally want the people that do some of the other great features at the event, you know, whether it's the quality award, we, we definitely want to see those people win and, and really do some kick-ass presentations to get to that next level. And, and I think there's just this spirit of mutual support that carries the whole industry. So let me ask you this. Speaking of carrying the industry, the industry is in a really interesting place right now because we are we are hearing so much about AI. And we've said on the Green Book Podcast and in other forums as well that the need for qual has never been greater. The need for, you know, human conversations to balance some of the technology. What are your thoughts on that? Have you have you heard simmerings about, boy, it's so important right now that that qual just takes the forefront? Or takes the lead in some industry conversations. What's what's the pulse of the association and the rise of AI? Um,
2: you know, we're, we're nervous. I think everybody's a little nervous because we don't we like this went from being a pipe dream to active application very fast. So that kind of speed we're still processing, we're still grappling with it. I think everybody is, whether you're quant or qual. And and so it's trying to figure out like, okay, wh- where is our place? In this, how this is a tool. How do we utilize this tool? Because, you know, the saying goes, new technology isn't going to take your job, but people using that new technology will. So we need to be there. This is here. It's happening. We can't ignore it. What can we do with it? So we need to recognize what it is good for and what it is not good for. And where do we come in in that? It is good for pattern recognition. So what does that do for us? Okay. Well, those, there are qualitative AI analysis tools out there. They have varying capabilities, but those are things we can use, because transcript analysis is basically pattern recognition. So if it's good at identifying patterns, we can use it for that, and that, that's going to save me time. I still need to provide my judgment, and that is where our value comes in. That has always been our value, is judgment. Is that a worthwhile pattern? Is that true? Is that a mistake? What can we ignore? What can we not ignore? What are the things that the client really needs to dig in on? I don't think that's going away. And I don't think our judgment in the moment during a conversation is also going away. I don't know if a computer is going to be able to have that little tickle that goes, I think there's more here and I need to dig in. That answer seemed incomplete and we need more. And AI can do that. And there are AI-assisted platforms that will help you deliver quality scale or help suggest questions, and that can be helpful too. That can take off some of the mental lift, and that's that is also helpful. But as far as like writing the guide, great starter. We need to also come in and and bump and punch it up. It could be helpful in online discussions that aren't recorded, that aren't video or or anything like that. It can be helpful there, suggesting new questions, helping to get people to, to kind of elaborate on their answers. There are platforms that do that. For me in my practice, I'm really excited about being able to, to just feed videos into a platform, being able to still get the highlight reels that I like to make, but having all that time that I would spend like hours and hours and hours of work Highlighting and tagging and highlighting and tagging all kinds of key phrases and not having to do that anymore. Pretty cool. I can deliver insights faster or I can take on more work.
1: Yeah. And I think that the important thing, you know, when you talk about that little tickle, you know, and I remember kind of back in the day when I had been Reva trained, as so many qualitative researchers are, and Naomi Henderson used to talk about kind of, you know, going for those gold nuggets. I don't know that AI can can go after the thing when you get that feeling, when you get that that tickle, as you're saying, that says, oh, this is a path that we need to go down for a while. That's, I think, the unique skill of a qualitative researcher is being able to identify the moment that something can shift in the conversation. And you're like, yep, we're going down this path now. I, I think that 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 is a limitation of the AI. That is how qualitative consultant can really deliver some stellar work for organizations because they've they had that moment they've had that tickle then they chase that golden nugget and and it can be you know brand changing or strategy changing and really guide that decision making anyway that's the beauty of qualitative so i think that's a really astute thing to have pointed out thank you so do you think when you say people are nervous and by people you know we're talking collectively about the the membership are they nervous about what it's doing in the uncertainty or are they nervous that it will take away their their jobs and their positions? Because everything that I'm hearing on the side of the larger industry is that the need for qual is bumping up and, and people should be getting even more business as companies are trying to balance what they're getting from potentially synthetic respondents or, you know, large scale surveys with AI assist, they're going to need to talk to people. What do you think?
2: I think it's mostly the uncertainty. Like I said this this all of a sudden became that became a viable technology very quickly. And so we're like I said we're still processing, we're still grappling, we're trying to figure out where it's going. So yeah, I think it's more the uncertainty than it is like fear that this might take our jobs. Occasionally we do like see some things and just like these proposals like here is an AI platform that is going to be your researcher. We see those, you know, we want to run a qual study. We can, it can run a qual study. You want it to run a quant study. It can run a quant study. And you're just kind of like, okay. And that, you know, I have had people kind of like email me just going, Hey, we should be aware of this. And I'm like, I'm that's, yeah, that's, that's super interesting. Um, Maybe, but I'm not confident that the industry is ready to do that or that someone running it who doesn't have the. The experience of doing this on a regular basis will be able to to run it well, even if it does have an AI assist. You still, like I said, you're paying for judgment. You're paying for expertise. and that's that's what we do. That's
1: what we do. I think it's also as you're as you're sharing that, it's reminding me of when the DIY kind of platform started to hit. And the next thing you know, there was chatter at the QRCA about, wait a minute, are these DIY tools going to make us uh, irrelevant? And there was this worry that you know brands and, and buyers of research services would kind of skip over the quality of a researcher and start to do it theirself. And you know, to some degree, in-house researchers became uh, much more proficient at that point, right? So there are there were you know researchers working for large corporations that are doing the work of what used to be, you know, a consultant doing it, but it didn't destroy the whole field. <laughs> you know, it was just a dynamic to navigate. And, and It was a
2: dynamic to navigate, but it also kind of drove demand because people were just like, oh, this was nice. Maybe we could do more.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then also, what can, for the QRCA, that brought kind of a whole new segment of the audience to serve, right? Okay, identification that, all right, now we have these professionals who have different professional development needs, but we sure want to make sure that the integrity of the research is up to some of the standards that the QRCA has put into place. So we had different standards that we developed as an association to help those people. And I bet that some of those things are in the works? I don't know. Do you have any kind of spoiler alerts for things that you're doing in leadership to help guide our membership into making some of these decisions? Or is it still, are you still in the gathering information stage?
2: We are developing guidelines around like proper standard practices for utilizing AI. And of course, our digital privacy certification course definitely covers AI and And how to kind of navigate uh, privacy challenges there. So, yeah, we are doing that, but also like part of our culture is just coming together and talking about it. So we do have uh, an AI special interest group. And there are two people leading that who are really great. and they they have every they're very busy people. They have every intention to like pull something together before the end of the year. But, but I've told them just like, keep it really simple. Part of what we do, part of like the benefit is just coming together and talking something out. And there was an AI kind of like group discussion at, the, at our last conference and it was electric. I could definitely see like having regular discussions just like that, just what's going on? What are people doing? How are people navigating this space? What are kind of like cautionary tales? What are the success stories that you wanna share? that's our bread and butter. That's how we That's how we get better as a group is by coming together and talking about what we do.
1: And those special interest groups, I do love them. And I kind of want to give a shout out to them in particular. And if, and if there are QRCA members that are listening to this right now, and you're not involved in any of the, the SIGs or special interest groups, you know, uh, the one that I was involved in was the creativity innovation one with some really close friends of mine. It's a great one. And one of the things that I loved about it is if we didn't have a speaker or if we didn't have a topic, we'd just all get online and share. Hey, what are some cool things you're doing? What are some creative approaches we can use? And we would literally just talk thematically on uh, creative methods or creative thinking or creative activities. And it was a very safe way to just say, yeah, there's nothing really specific happening, but we were coming together with a shared interest, right? And I think the online SIG is another one that you know really had to step in. And the leadership there kind of take a role when online started to really grow and it was like special interest group. And at first it was, okay, what do we need to learn? What are the platforms we need to be aware of? How do we incorporate online qual into our practices? And so it was incredibly educational. So I'm sure this AI SIG is going to be something to, to watch and engage in. If you're one of those people that's nervous that Lauren was sort of hinting at, like get involved in that because that's how you're going to overcome any of that uncertainty you have by, by learning from people who are actively talking about it. So they're a great resource. They're a great resource. So I wanna I wanna just cross another uh, another gap to to this big topic. Remember, I said I want to talk to you about UX. One of the conversations that I have had frequently are with some UX researchers that I've met at like some some other kind of Qual 360 is the one that comes to mind. I had first met some at a, at a Qual 360 event, which it's like, right, qualitative research and UX, those kind of overlaps just a little bit, you know, and there's other UX events and then when you come to our events at greenbook iix events i've had some ux people come and speak and and certainly attend and some qualitative researchers come and speak and also attend how do you see kind of the industry in the 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 qualitative niche in the larger industry and some of these factions coming together like are you are you seeing it change or evolve? Do you see it changing and evolving in the future? Talk to me about your thoughts on that.
2: Yeah, that is a, that's a good question. So what I have seen, so I have been at this UX research since 2016, I'm kind of married into it. My husband is a user interface designer. And so I, had, I was very familiar with the terminology. I was very familiar. I had been to a bunch of UX conferences. I, I knew how to talk the talk. And I also knew that what they were describing as UX research was basically parallel to qual. It was, it was like a twin. And so what I needed to do in order to get in is I needed to be able to have some credibility there. I knew I could do it. I knew I could. I just didn't have specifically UX research on my resume. And it wasn't until I got that first gig with someone who she was the head of wrangling up researchers for their, uh, for their jobs and we just started talking and, and we started geeking out about survey platforms, about of, of, of all things. We started geeking out about survey platforms. And she was just like, you know what? You may not have UX on your resume, but you are clearly a skilled researcher. You know what you're talking about. And I need a researcher. I don't need a designer. Because that was what I was hearing a lot. They were like, yeah, and you know, it's a UX research job, but you don't have design in your background. I'm like, I don't know what you want then. Do you want a researcher or do you want a designer? because those are not the same things. And at the time, like back then, it was, that was all they needed was someone who was with a designer that could also just sit in a room and ask people questions and produce a a viable report. And so as the industry matured, specialization started to happen where they recognized that they needed people who were dedicated and skilled to this role. Now, as the industry has further matured, I mean, they just had seen their first like, Major layoff event, which happened earlier this year. I mean, there was a stat that said like 50% of UX researchers out there were affected by layoffs. That's a sea change moment. And that's the first time they've ever seen that. And I was just like, you should have seen that coming because if you, if you paid any attention to how market research works, which is very mature, you should know your job is very much tracked and affected by the economy. And so if there is an economic reason for you to be laid off, you will get laid off because you are not you are not critical to producing a product you are expendable and so i knew i was just like that time between 2016 and this year it was a freaking party so i celebrated as much as i could and so now it's going to be a little bit more of a struggle because there a lot cuz first layoff now hopefully we'll see some some comeback a little bit of a bounce but there's going to be a lot of people who are going to leave the industry because they're just like they were not prepared for that and now they're also getting burnt out because they're, asked to, they're being asked to deliver the same... Le- the people who are left are being asked to deliver the same level of work and the same amount of work, but with less people and less resources. So we'll see how this goes. And then also with that, we're also seeing increased specialization. So now it used to be people who are dedicated to the profession of UX research. Now we're seeing people who they're specialized quantitative UX researchers they're specialized qualitative UX researchers. And that's that's another sea change, is seeing that starting to happen. Now, some companies are approaching this in different ways. There are some companies that are merging their research departments, both UX and market research, into a a single capacity. There are others that are keeping them separate. I think probably the way to go just for resource sharing and things like that is to have a single practice of research. What I think market research can learn from UX research is their ability to be proactive. Their teams are embedded in product teams, so their researchers are there, they're in all the meetings, and so they see what's coming down the pipe and they're able to say, okay, well, if this is happening, then we need to do this, 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 and this from a research standpoint, or they're able to like identify that there's a research question floating around that needs to be answered. It's hard to do that when you are not an embedded team, which is traditional for market research, That they bring you a problem, you don't find a problem. And so that's where I think that, there's, that market research is, I think this is, could be a really great moment for market research to become more embedded and more essential to teams by becoming embedded and having a single kind of practice hub. But being able to be part of teams and being able to integrate yourself, I think that that's going to be really important for people moving forward.
1: I love hearing all of this kind of very astute awareness of the dynamics between those different roles. So thank you for sharing some of those. Are there other things that you see coming down the pike kind of before we wrap coming down the pike, just larger, larger dynamics in the, you know, market research ecosystem, because you also in your own practice span, both qual and quant, any other dynamics and, and sea changes you see coming our way?
2: Oh, I don't know. I mean, it's really easy to see the UX stuff because it's just because it just it's following the same pattern as market research has. They just don't know it and they may not recognize it. For market research, they definitely were affected by the tech shrinkage as well. I mean, everybody kind of saw their their budgets tighten a bit with that. So yeah, I mean, the trends as as far as economically are the same. I mean, it rises and falls with uh, with our economic fate. As far as other things, um, like what's I mean, AI of course. I mean, disruptive tech is is always going to come in and 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 give us pause. But yeah, what's what's coming up with uh, with market research? Yeah, not 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 entirely sure. I'm still still riding the wave a bit. So and it's it's harder to see. What's going to happen next? I think that the AI, I mean first it was blockchain. then now there's also talk about like responding data quality and things like that. There's, I don't think those conversations are going away anytime soon.
1: Lauren, so you know with that in mind, we're we're still navigating the current tides that we're on. What is next on the horizon though for the QRCA? What is what is coming down the pipeline for all things QRCA? This is your time for a shameless plug? Anything you'd like to share with our audience?
2: Uh, Let's see. I say the next big event is our annual conference in January in Denver. So we were talking about that earlier and what an incredible conference it is. Just the amount of notes that people walk away with. Like I know I go to conferences pretty regularly and I sit there and I watch the presentations and they're really great, but I don't walk away with notes. QRCA, I very rarely don't walk away with notes. Like I usually walk away with pages and pages of notes that I have gathered from people's presentations and the roundtable discussions that we have. And then all of the the opportunities to get to know people, like if you come to a QRCA conference and you don't know anybody, that's not gonna last. You can take an, an ambassador program where people will kind of like, you'll be paired with an experienced person and they will guide you through like how to have a great conference. There's also rounds where you get to have dinner with a small group of people and you get to know people that way. Then there's also the discussions that you have. There's like all kinds of little breakouts and stuff like that and, and meeting new people. It's so fun. One of my favorite places to meet new people is honestly, it's the buffet line. It's just turning around the buffet line and asking the person behind me who they are, what they're doing here, is their first time, where are, they, where are they from, what do they do? It's it's a great place to get to know people is just waiting in the buffet line.
1: That's great. It's I used to say to people, you know, I get to talk to people for a living. And certainly when you get hundreds of people who talk to people for a living, there's no you know, no, no, (laughs) no fear of saying, Hey, would you like to chat? Because everybody's like pretty much sure. Let's chat. That's what we do. So (laughs) I am with you. I think it's a great event and I wish you great success with it. Anything else that you wish I had asked you Lauren, before we wrap in terms of either what's going on with the QRCA or your role as president, anything else you'd like to share with our audience?
2: Oh no, not really. I think you kind of hit it. Like I was able to say what I think is important about the organization and what I love about it and why I said yes to being president because I want to see this organization grow and thrive. And I I really hope that because I know that like what I love about it, there's a lot of people out there that, that would totally love about it. And we just need to, to bring, make people more aware that, that this exists and membership is, it's a worthwhile investment for your career. It's so great for, for your career, but also just, it's a great social presence as well. Like most of my like best friends are researchers and QRCA members. Like when we hang it's, it's like meeting with, with your, with your besties all the time. It's great.
1: Yeah, it really is great. Some of my besties are there as well. So it's, I think um, one of the things that comes to mind is that it's holistically well for you to be a QRCA member, right? You get your professional development and you get your social connection all in one, all in one terrific package. Lauren, thank you so much for being here with us for this conversation, for joining us on our podcast. It was a pleasure to have you here. Great to be here. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. I also want to thank our producer, Natalie. Thanks so much. Our audio editing from Big Bad Audio, thank you so much for all you do. And of course, our listeners, it is a pleasure to be able to bring you conversations that you can listen to regularly. Thank you for tuning in and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.
0: Greenbook for the 2024 insight innovation exchange this global conference series also known as iiex is where connections are made inspiration is found and innovative solutions are discovered with more than 90 percent of attendees using iiex insights to shape strategic business decisions the return on investment is undeniable whether you're in asia pacific north america europe or latin america iiex is your gateway to the latest market research best practices tech innovation, and strategies for transporting insights into action. Nurture your career and business with insights from across the globe. And here's a bonus. Use the special code PODCAST to save 20% on general admission for all IIEX events. Visit greenbook.org slash events today to learn more and register. See you there.